Welcome to the Earspoon. This is Fish, and we have started a special line of interviewing called A Call to Action. We hope to distribute as much quality information to you about an ever-changing landscape, but please keep in mind, as it does change often, so might this information. It's all dated, and by all means, before acting on any of it, verify it. And as all Earspoon podcasts, it is presented to you by Mocha Joe's. If you live locally, they are offering curbside pickup, and they're still doing shipping through their website, mochajoes.com. Welcome to A Call to Action, a series presented by Great Eastern Radio and Brattleboro Community Television. We're covering many different topics from state shutdowns to our food supply. Today, we're talking with Michael Pichak. He's the commissioner of the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation. I'm Peter Fish Case. Mike, welcome to A Call to Action. Hey, thanks, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so let, let me get right into this. What what does the Commissioner of Financial Regulation have to do with COVID-19? So in the, in the normal world, you know, we regulate banks, credit unions, uh, investment firms. Uh, basically, we're protecting Vermonters, protecting their investments, protecting their money. Uh, so that's sort of our normal day job. Uh, however, the governor did ask um, myself and our department uh, to work on modeling uh, the disease progression in Vermont modeling what we could anticipate for hospital demand uh, in our state, modeling um, what we could expect now that we're starting to talk about reopening the state, you know, what we could see in terms of new case count and again, demand on the hospital and what's the strategic and safe way to reopen uh, our state. So this is something that obviously we don't normally uh, work on pandemics and, and uh, modeling for pandemics, but our department does have quite a bit of experience with actuarial work. You know, we need to, um, be able to confirm that a life insurance company has sufficient capital to pay out on all the promises it's making, you know, under its life insurance policies, for example. Uh, we do a lot with financial modeling to make sure, again, that banks or credit unions have sufficient capital on hand um, so that they can pay uh, people when they need their money out of the bank or credit union. So those were skill sets that we had, but um, again, we're not epidemiologists and we needed to we needed to get that part of the skill set as well. Um, but I think we were well positioned to, to do some of this work. All right. So when I was doing my research on you, trying to figure out why you were the guy to talk to, I want to touch on something, and I, and I think you'll probably have an answer for me. Um, I just received a small kickback from my insurance company of $46. And when I was reading about uh, you and all the things that you do, why is my insurance company giving me money back? Yeah, great question. So um, if you think about you getting a policy for a year, let's say on your auto insurance side, you know, you're anticipated that you're going to be covered for, for, for 12 months of risk, right? You're out driving around, you're going to work, you're going to social events. However, you know, as we all know, uh, the month of March, pretty much in the month of April, certainly and part of May, you know, we're all at home. We're not for the most part, going to work. We're not certainly driving to our friends' houses and, and all of that thing. So the amount that we drive has been reduced significantly and the amount of claims that insurance companies, auto insurance companies are paying out has dropped dramatically. So um, we've been working with our auto insurance companies saying, you know, the risk is really not the same as when you anticipated this at the beginning of the year. And as a result, you know, you really should be providing refunds to Vermonters uh, to take into account the reduced risk, the the the, in, the the fact that Vermonters are driving less and therefore having less accidents, uh, less claims are being made, um, and that Vermonters should benefit uh, from that reduction. So you know what you know. I think the average is probably you know somewhere around your size of the check that you got, fifty dollars. 
Yeah. Um, but every little bit helps, certainly, we think, on the financial side. But it's also the appropriate thing to do. I mean, you know, you were driving less. We are all driving less. Uh, so we should see that um, that reduction in our in our uh, auto policies. Right. Well, that's, you know, that's amazing. It was something like I, when I saw it come through, um, you know, my wife was checking uh, online banking. She asked me what I purchased from our insurance company. I said, nothing. <laughs> and because you're just so used to seeing it come out and not go back in. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly right. To see it come back in was probably a little shocking. So, so at this point, we have 96% um, of all the policies issued in Vermont have, have, have some sort of refund associated with it. So that's the vast percentage of the market. Um, we're working on the, you know, the last 4%, but um, you know, that 4% represents many different carriers that only have a few policies in the state. So the vast majority of Vermonters should be seeing a refund similar to the one that you saw um, in your checking account. Now, will that, will that, will that be, will that move forward now from here until, until things sort of return back to normal? And I mean, and then what's that line look like? Yeah. So every company had a little bit different approach. Some of them said we'll do it for two months. Some of them said we'll do it for six months just to account for a reduction in risk for the rest of the year. Every plan that we approved from an insurance company, we added in the flexibility to extend the period of time. Because even as you know, I mean, let's say, let's say that um, we're reopened by middle of May or by late May. You know, people might not be out driving about in the same way they did, you know, in in January and February. So even if a, a stay-at-home order is re relaxed or, re or released, we still want to make sure that um, the risk is similar to what it was priced for. And if people are staying home and not driving, you know, that needs to be taken into account as well. So again, most of them had a two or three month window, and then we'll see what um, the stay at home orders look like, and we'll also see what driving habits look like going forward. Interesting. So it's really, it's comforting to know that somebody's sort of keeping their eye on this, I have to say, so thank you. Yeah, and, that, and that's sort of the normal work that we do, right? That's sort of our day in right. and day out job is, is protecting Vermont consumers and, um, and looking out for them. Awesome. All right, now, um, now how do you feel and and when I say that, and I, and I mean when I say you, I mean the state of Vermont. Um, how has the response been to the pandemic? Say in 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 the onset, of course, you know. And I joke around. I call. I think today I'm calling this March 58th, but you know, it's sort of like it's sort of time stop. But from that time, which was about March 11th or 12th, when this thing whole rolled out, how how do you feel the state of Vermont responded? So the people of Vermont, I think, responded in a way that we didn't anticipate. I mean, they responded so well. You know, I, they were highly compliant with every order from the governor. Um, they, it's clear that Vermonters are following, you know, social distancing practices. It's clear they're following guidelines about mask usage and, um, and hygiene guidance. You can't say everybody is doing it, but when we look at Vermont and we compare that to our New England counterparts, uh, just on mobility, for example. So, you know, it's it cer certainly probably gives some people pause and it sounds like Big Brother, but there are a lot of companies out there that you voluntarily um, allow them to track your location on your phone. You know, there's a, when you download an app and it says allow to, to sort of track you and you say yes, what they're basically doing is then selling that data to other companies that sort of aggregate it and anonymize it. And then, and then you can sort of see how frequently people move around a particular state. And so, for example, if we pick Vermont, you know, we saw some of the greatest declines in, in mobility uh, compared to any other state across the country. 
and particularly relating to New Hampshire to uh, New England. So what that tells us is that Vermonters really were highly compliant with the social distancing protocols. They were making all of the personal, professional, um, and uh, and other sacrifices that we that we were asking of them. And really, it's only it's only because of that reason. I mean, that's the reason that we stopped the virus progression in its tracks. Um, we were growing at a pretty heavy rate in the middle of March, like a 30 to 40 percent sort of case growth rate. And uh, the social distancing measures went out. Vermonters were highly compliant with them. And the virus, again, the growth rate just got the brakes just got slammed on it. And, and it is now in the you know, less than 1% sort of category in terms of the growth rate. So that's really great to see. Yeah, no, so that, that is good. And, and I think that, uh, I think that everybody who, uh, the whole executive branch just, I think they reacted quickly. So I'm, I'm, I was pretty pleased with, uh, with how these things rolled out. Now numbers can often get daunting, but uh, when, when we're crunching numbers around life and death, like you've been, I mean, how much more daunting does that get? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it was really, uh, it was really kind of a surreal experience because you know when we first did our first calculation, right? And again, this whole, you know, in some ways, it's an experiment, the social distancing, because we haven't seen this implemented in a in a significant way in a hundred years, right? So we don't know how effective it's going to be. We don't know how uh, how compliant people are going to be with the orders. So as we're doing our first set of modeling, and and it shows, you know, a worst case scenario could be you know, hundreds of people in the ICU, hundreds of people needing ventilators, thousands of people needing hospital beds, and uh, and we don't necessarily have the capacity for all of those things, right? Um, so that's really, really daunting and, and can be unnerving, right? When you're thinking about the task at hand, okay, we need to, we need to flatten the curve, we need to slow the disease progression, but we also need to build out our hospital capacity. So it was really a two-fold strategy. And we were very fortunate that um, Vermonters were highly compliant, that the, you know, we flattened the curve, if you will. Um, and we were also at the same time able to build up our hospital capacity in the event that um, we weren't as successful. So I can remember again, when we first ran our first numbers and you start thinking, you know, who are these, who, you know, you start trying to, you start, it's not just numbers anymore. You start thinking about the fact that, oh my God, people in Brattleboro, might not have an emergency room available to them. They might not have an ICU unit available to them. They might not have a ventilator when they need one. And, um, you know, you, you saw scenes unfolding in Italy and other places where they were experiencing that. And it was really sobering and, um, you know, quite, quite surreal, as I said. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, both you and I have family in this state. So, you know, I mean, our, our uh, un un unfortunately, we, we might be a little bit more emotionally attached to running those numbers than than other folks. Um, but let's talk for, about per, uh, projections and let's spend a few minutes on that. Uh, all indications are that uh, we, we're going to do a second round of the coronavirus uh, and that will hit in the fall. After uh, and of course, after a whole summer with with relaxed regulations, I mean, have you guys run numbers on that? What does that look like for Vermont? Yeah. So. Um, you know, right from the beginning, we always said that, you know, we have the greatest amount of confidence in the short term. So let's call it like a month to two months out. And that still is the case. I mean, so many things can happen between now and two months from now. That's really hard to predict. So there are a lot of predictions about a second wave. Let's call it November, December, the same time the flu might come about. Um, and certainly that's on our radar. But the thing that we're focused on right now is what happens in the month, the rest of the month of May and June and July, 
as social distancing measures get relaxed. We want to make sure that we don't see, you know, an, uh, an increase in cases over the summer. That would give us a cause for concern um, because, you know, there is some scientific evidence out there that um, humidity and heat uh, do impact the virus. Um, but at the same time, it's not conclusive and we don't know to what degree that's the case. So we have to also assume that by relaxing social distancing measures in the short term, there might be an impact on cases as well. So we're really, really focused on the summer um, with an eye obviously toward the fall as well um, and what a, a, what a real second wave might bring um, in November uh, and uh, December. Right. Yeah. You know, I've just... I, I'm one of the things that I'm concerned about is that we do get relaxed and, and people start to feel normal again. And, and then the, you know, and then the chains get thrown back on and what those reactions might look like. But I, you know, again, I think we're fairly fortunate. We live in a state that tends to kind of listen to the science behind it all. I think um, that's right. Yeah. It, now it's, it's safe to say that the, the calculations that you are doing here now will, will do, do these same kind of calculations carry over to our our, our our border neighbors like Mass, New York, New Hampshire? I mean, are, are they forced to use different metrics or do they are they kind of using the same the same metrics you're using? So, you know, we've been working with. So I should I should mention at the beginning, we said that we're not epidemiologists. So what we did was we went and found um, uh, basically four different partners that we work with on modeling. So uh, two of them are academic. Uh, one is from uh, Northeastern, one is from Columbia. One of them's in the professional sort of public space um, from a big, large consulting firm. Um, and then one of them is very well publicized entity called IHME out of Washington. They're also academic as well. Um, so with those four modelers that have plenty of epidemiologists and, and very smart people on staff, we were able to um, build out some of these scenarios for Vermont. So they're working with a number of other states as well, but there's really not a uniform approach. And I think it speaks to some of the concerns that we have with the federal response, not the state response, but the federal response that we really didn't necessarily have a, a place we could go to to get this kind of modeling done at the federal level, uh, nor were there really any guidelines as to, you know, these are the metrics you should be following as a state. So we all kind of have to, we all kind of had to scramble and do that ourselves and then um, I can't say for sure whether New Hampshire and Massachusetts are looking at the same type of modeling that we're looking at, um, but we can, you know, through the lens that we're looking through, get a sense of how well New Hampshire, Maine, upstate New York, um, Rhode Island, Connecticut are doing compared to us. And that is something that we have to keep an eye on because, you know, as, as you can imagine, and as you know, I mean, New England is such a small area geographically that people can drive any to any of those states in a single day and um, and as Vermont continues to do well compared to our counterparts Vermont will look like a more and more attractive place to ride out the pandemic or even to just take a trip or, or enjoy some of the summertime so that's a concern that we have is that retransmission of the disease from other places in New England yeah well I mean I, I think it's cause for concern and I don't want to be this guy who closes borders and um, I think I was a little vocal around around Leahy's original statement about stay at home. Um, when you know now I'm I'm kind of rethinking my position on his. <laughs> so, and it's not that I don't want to leave our state open, you know, for people to come and visit. I just I just you know wish they would be smart about it. Um, one of the things yeah. I do here in a, in a call to action is I always kind of tend to ask a, a question that will likely not have a concrete answer. 
Um, and I always say that nobody pandemics well and that uh, we're all trying to fix the car while it's moving. Um, how have your calculations changed uh, from the onset versus now and, and, and looking, looking forward? I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a great question because, you know, and we, we said this right off the top when we started to publicly talk about our projections, but, you know, the methodology and the assumptions were going to change over time, right? And what I mean by that, let's just stick with the assumptions. So at the beginning, you know, we were only looking at data coming out of China. China had experienced the pandemic first. They were weeks ahead of other places in the country. So when we were looking at how many people that get the virus need hospital care, how many people that get the virus need ICU care or ventilator care, you know, that was the only data set that we could really look at um, with any degree of confidence. As the weeks wore on and as there was more and more concern that maybe that the data out of China wasn't transparent and accurate, you know, there were some questions about that. Um, you know, we quickly were able to incorporate assumptions and data from Italy and from Spain and some other European uh, countries. So then we had multiple places to build these assumptions from. So that was very helpful. Um, uh, and still now we can build additional assumptions from US data as well. So basically our assumptions, our assumptions changed over time. They became, more, um, they became more accurate, I would say, because we now have a larger sample size, not just one country, but multiple countries and multiple experiences. The other thing with the methodology, you know, there are different approaches to this, um, but most of the methodologies were built off of the Chinese sort of, you know, curve. And again, as you get more um, examples of, of, of other countries experiencing this, you can change your methodology a little bit. Right. Recently, um, uh, our modeler started adding in mobility data. So we talked about this earlier. So basically, how frequently are people going to work? How frequently are they going to the grocery store? How frequently are they out of their house driving around? You know, by folding in that mobility data, it gives us a more accurate picture, we think, of what of the likelihood of transmission of the virus. So again, that gives a little bit more accurate opinion. So I would say that the, um, we're going to continue to refine them into the future. But I would say, um, and probably each one of our modelers would say this, and anyone that's working with modelers in the state government across the country, that we feel much more confident about our ability to project and, and model now than we did six or seven weeks ago. But again, it's still, it's still a forecast and it's still used for planning purposes. It's not used for exact science and precision. Um, but for that reason, for planning purposes, it's really effective. Okay, good. That's fair enough. Uh, I know, I know you're busy. So let me, let me just ask this. Is there any other information out there that maybe we haven't covered that you would want to get out there? So one thing I would mention is if, if people are interested, they can go to our department's website, uh, dfr.vermont.gov. Uh, and all of our models are available and all of our modeling partners are also available on our website. It has um, interactive models if our modelers have them as well. So people can go and sort of play around with it a little bit and, and, see, um, and see the methodologies that are being used and the assumptions being used. So, you know, that's something we put up about two weeks ago and think it's important for Vermonters to get to see that and, and understand it for themselves if they'd like. Uh, so I would direct people to there for our website. Um, also on our website is a lot of information about um, actions that we've taken um, in, in response to COVID-19 for our financial institutions. So things that benefit Vermonters from healthcare policy, 
um, to banking policy, to insurance policy. So another good place of information for people uh, to go and, and look at that information. I think the only thing that we haven't touched on that, that's worth mentioning is sort of the economic impact of all of this. You know, yeah. when when we were setting out and doing our work in in mid-March, you know, there's probably a three-day lag in my own brain between realizing this was a public health crisis to realizing, oh, there's also a economic crisis that's right on its heels. You know, it's right there. And um, there's been a lot of question about what's the best approach to balancing those two things. I think Vermont has done it well. I don't think you can respond to the economic crisis until the health crisis is under control, and and um, you know, and there's some and there's some good concrete um, progress that's being made on that front. Um, there's research out of the Federal Reserve that shows that that states and regions that responded aggressively and early to the to the 1918 pandemic had better long-term economic consequences as a result. So I know it's challenging for people, and and it's and it's really a struggle for businesses and individuals, but the best long-term strategy is really to progress out of this slowly to make sure we don't have um, a spike in cases over the summer and that we can manage our way through um, a potential second wave in the fall. So I think it's just a message of, you know, all of us in state government understand the, the sacrifices and the, and the economic strain this is putting on people. Um, and, and that's part of the decision-making is how do we get through this as quickly as possible so that that economic strain doesn't last longer than it needs to. Right. The, um, I use some, I, I use some brutal terminology that, uh, basically says, uh, if, if people are dying, nobody's buying. So. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Peter. I mean, we showed a slide, um, two weeks ago that talked about the amount of deaths we could have anticipated by the end of May if we had put no interventions in place. And for Vermont, that number on the high side was over 2,000. So I was making the point that if the government didn't shut the economy down, the economy would have shut itself down because people are not going out and buying things and living their normal lives when right. that kind of, you know, that kind of death and disease and, and um, despair is sort of all around us. Right. So, so we'll, just, uh, we'll just keep doing it. We'll get through it. Thank yes, although... The, and the governor has, we have started some slow steps to reopening um, and we'll continue to have a methodical approach to that. So again, we, we think we handled this well on the way in and uh, we want to make sure we handle it well on the way out as well. Well, so far, thumbs up for me and thank you for my insurance refund. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. Michael Pichek, thanks for jumping on a call to action with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to a special segment of the Earspoon called A Call to Action as we navigate the waters of a worldwide pandemic. More information will follow. And as always, be safe and be six feet apart.